Welcome to the International Space Station. Please note that we do not provide extra puke bags. The puke bags you brought with you need to last through your 48-hour puking adjustment period, so don't waste them. But I'm in space! This is so great! Who wants to talk about puking when you... Hey, is that my house? Look, I think I can see my house! In addition, be advised that puke sticks to your face rather than falling downward, so don't waste your puke wipes. Most people need all the puke wipes they brought. What was that? That was space junk. A lot of garbage up here, and the garbage runs into more garbage and breaks up into even more garbage, which creates even more collisions of garbage. It's called the Kessler effect. Try not to think about it. What is that? Look, there's something clinging to the window. Probably a xenomorph. A xeno what? A xenomorph. It's probably laying some eggs up on our solar panels. Now it wants to kill us and feed its young by regurgitating us or whatever. That is really terrifying. You get used to them. Don't look at them. That gets them worked up. It's pounding on the window now with its spiky little tail. Why wasn't I told about these things during training? I would not have come up here. Can I go home? Like I said, you get used to them. They're like squirrels, if squirrels had highly corrosive acid for blood. Okay, I need to calm down. Is that a Zappos catalog? Can I look at it? Shopping for shoes just really... It calms me down. Nope. I had to lock Natasha in an evacuation pod just to get this. The space station is not at all what I thought it would be. For example, there appear to be no Vulcans or replicators that make Earl Grey tea. On the other hand, I am only here for 11 days. Months. M- was it months? I'm really bad at reading terms of service. Well, I'm settling in bad, Xenomorph. Go chase some space junk. Listen to this show. And now the test pilot for space diapers, Colin McEnroe. All right, yes. So uh, today we are talking about something something that changed, really, the, one aspect of the human race. Uh, I like saying this anyway, that, you know, if you think about the entire span of the human of human life from, you know, the time of John the Baptist to Cleopatra to Charlemagne to Robert Frost, you know, there's been one thing you could sort of consistently say without fear of contradiction, which is that all of the human beings lived on the surface of the earth. Right. I mean, that was just sort of a given. Uh, And then things started to change. So as of tomorrow, we will have um, we will observe tomorrow the anniversary of 17 years in which at any given time, some members of the human race were not living on the planet. Uh, And when you think about that, that's kind of remarkable. So they were living not too far away, uh, 240, 250 uh, miles away. uh, So in low Earth orbit on the International Space Station, which does turn 17 tomorrow. Um, Even as we're speaking, the... um, possibly, probably incoming NASA administrator is having a confirmation hearing. Uh, I would imagine the ISS will come up. So a little bit later in the show, you're going to meet Scott Kelly. Scott Kelly is one of the people who has spent a lot of time on the space station, including almost a year uh, on one of his stays. Uh, He's a retired astronaut. Uh, You'll be uh, hearing some of the stories of what it's like to be up there. Right now, we're going to talk to Eric Berger, uh, a senior space editor for Ars Technica. He joins us by Skype from Houston, of course, from Houston. Uh, And welcome to our conversation, Eric Berger. Thanks for having me, Colin. Good afternoon. So maybe for people who don't think about the ISS, and I have to confess that when I'm not doing this particular episode of this particular show, I haven't really thought uh, about the ISS very much. Remind people, what is this thing uh, that's up there in the sky? 
Well, I would say you're not alone. Most people don't think a whole lot about the ISS. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because, as you said, it's been up there for, for almost two decades now and that, that humans have been living on it. But but if you do stop and think about it, it's pretty impressive that the space station is really quite large. Certainly there's been no spacecraft um, in orbit around the Earth or in space ever before nearly so large. Um, when you include the wingspan of its solar panel rays, it's about the size of football field. Um, it has the interior volume of a suburban, you know, three, three or four bedroom house. Um, if you want to think about it that way. And if you, if you think back to kind of the cramped capsules of the Apollo spacecraft, or even the space shuttle, which had really limited area in, in the mid deck for six or seven crew, it's, it's really a, a rather large space. And so you've got this large orbiting laboratory that kind of goes around and around the Earth, and, and we have people living in, in microgravity. So as um, the confirmation hearings are unfolding for uh, Congressman uh, Jim Bridenstine, if that's how you say his name, who's been uh, nominated to run NASA, I'm sure, and I know that they've been going for a while, I'm sure somebody at some point is going to bring up the ISS and say something like, well, they call it uh, international, but don't we pay for almost all of it? I mean, hasn't the United States uh, footed the bill? Uh, I'm, I'm imagining some congressman from the South saying this. Uh, so how true is that? The, I, I, like, I have that notion, too, that it's the International Space Station. We certainly have people from all over the world up there, but that the, an awful lot of the costs are borne by the United States. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. The United States does pay for the lion's share of the expenses. The budget line in NASA's overall portfolio is about $4 billion, which makes up over one-fifth of the space agency's budget um, to, to keep the space station flying and keep crew there and keep them supplied with food, water, and scientific experiments and things like that. Um, but without the International Space Station, the United States really has no space program. Um, and so it, it makes sense to keep it, keep it flying for now. And it's a good symbol of, of international cooperation. You, know, you, you can say, well, the Europeans don't contribute that much money, and they don't, but they've helped supply the space station in the past. You know, the Canadians don't commit much money, but they've put up a really spectacular robotic arm that's used all the time to grab visiting spacecraft. Um, the Russians have been invaluable partners since the end of the space shuttle. That's who we've, that's how we've gotten our people into space since 2011 is aboard the Soyuz spacecraft. And so it's really been a symbol for, for how international governments can work together or how governments can work together on an international scale and, and do, do, do pretty interest, interesting things. And certainly, I mean, as uh, one of the articles that I read pointed out, I mean, we could have an interesting conversation uh, if we could go back in time and decide whether to do this as opposed to a bunch of other possible different things. Um, but the the costs are essentially sunk right now. Uh, I mean, most uh, you could sort of say it's kind of amortized or depreciated. It's a point now where we're keeping it up there for its useful life certainly makes a, a heck of a lot more sense than not, as you said. But then we need to talk about what it's for. And so let's let's suspend one of its functions because I think Scott Kelly is going to talk a bit about one of the ways that the International Space Station provides an environment to study what it's like for people to be in space for long periods of time. That's going to get even more interesting if we want to try to go to Mars. So it's helpful to know what happens to the human body and maybe even the human mind uh, at low microgravity. Uh, and, and just being in space. But let's park that um, car in, in the back of the lot. Um, what are the other purposes of the space station? What does it get done? 
So there are three main pillars to, that, to essentially justify the station's existence. And then I'll talk about a fourth one that, that is kind of unspoken, but is, is actually the real reason why the, the station is there. The, the one you mentioned was kind of human health and performance in space. How do we keep astronauts healthy in that environment for a long period of time? Um, the second area is scientific research. The ISS is an international laboratory. If you're an academic researcher, if you're a private researcher, if you work for a company, there are ways for you to get your experiment on the station. It may take a little time, but it doesn't cost a whole lot. And so if you're interested in, in studying the performance of materials in zero gravity or in the vacuum of space um, or in the very low temperatures of space or in that radiation environment, there are opportunities for you to do it. And there are, you know, there are potential areas where that may have some revolutionary effects. It has yet to sort of make a super big splash in the research community. And then finally is it's a technology test bed. So, you know, if you're really going to want to go to Mars, you know, you'd better have a toilet on board your spacecraft that works because if that toilet breaks, you're going to die. And so, you know, if you build a space potty, you can try it on the International Space Station for the next three or four years and see if it actually works. Um, same thing for water reclamation or a host of other systems that, um, you know, that are kind of important. And you'd rather test those technologies in orbit, where if they fail, you can replace them. Whereas if you're on a, on a spaceship to Mars for three years or wherever and it breaks, then you're in a lot of trouble. You can't resupply, you know, in, in that case. And so those are the kind of the three pillars the real reason the station exists, I think, is because, you know, in the 1990s, you had had the space shuttle program that had existed for a couple of decades, but it really needed something to do. Um, the military was no longer interested in flying their missions on the space shuttle, and the space shuttle needed something to do, and that obvious thing was to help construct this modular space station. And so that's why ultimately you had this international partnership develop. It was kind of the next thing that the space agency could do that was really within the grasp of its budget. You know, Eric, uh, once again, I'm, I couldn't be uh, a more naive uh, outsider to this conversation, but what little I do know about any of this stuff makes me think, well, what are we getting really good at down here on Earth? Well, we're getting a lot better at robots, and we're even getting better at artificial intelligence, um, and, you know, from a certain point of view, there's almost something a little anthropocentric about the idea of an international space station and using that maybe, you know, to pave the way to get to Mars. Um, you know, for three or four billion dollars a year, you could probably build a lot of things that aren't human beings that could go a lot of places and find out a lot of stuff. I mean, is there something about the ISS that, I mean, we're still kind of maybe locked into this very human centric view of how to do things? Well, I'll answer that question with basically a cliche response, which is no bucks, no buck Rogers, right. no buck Rogers, no bucks. I mean, it's basically half of NASA's budget is human exploration program related. Um, the fascination, the public is more interested in human activities in space than they are with robots. Now, that's not to say that the recent, you know, the flyby of Pluto by New Horizons wasn't spectacular. Cassino, Cassini's dive into Saturn um, after finding geysers on Enceladus was spectacular, and, and I am as big a believer in the planetary science program as anyone, but the fact of the matter is that the public interest in a space launch is an order of magnitude higher if there's people on board that rocket than if there's not. And so that's where a lot of the budget comes from, and so kind of the legacy of Apollo was when you put people on the surface of the moon is what can humans do next? 
And that's that's kind of the the question that, that NASA has been struggling with ever since. And they ultimately they came up with this idea of a space shuttle, reusable, try to lower the cost of spaceflight. That didn't really work. Um, but then kind of the next thing that you could really do that was affordable was was putting a station in low Earth orbit and having people up there and trying to understand what putting people up there for a long time, you know, the cha- sort of solving some of the challenges of living and working in space. So uh, there's so much to talk about here um, with uh, you, Eric Berger. I, I think as, as we begin, one of the things that interests me is, you know, we think of this as the, as the International Space Station. So representatives essentially of the governments of these countries wind up uh, up there. Um, on the other hand, there is a growing world of, of commerce that's interested in space. And, and I guess one of the things you can do if you follow all the rules correctly, if you're a business, maybe you can get uh, your widget uh, up there to be looked at in microgravity. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one thing that if you talk to the original planners of the space station, they didn't really envision is kind of the flowering of the space station as this platform for commercial activity. And that, to me, really is, is kind of the big success of the space station in the last decade. You know, people hear a lot about SpaceX, and it's a, it's a phenomenal company, but you know, the space station has really enabled them to grow much more quickly than they would have otherwise because it was money ultimately from NASA that led to, to the development of the Falcon 9 rocket, and they used that to deliver supplies to the station, and now NASA is facilitating this commercial crew program to get private companies, in this case it's SpaceX on one hand and Boeing on the other, to get people into space station. So this NASA has really played an important role in this. The station program in particular has played this role in kind of accelerating private spaceflight, private orbital spaceflight. And then you have the actual you know experiments on board the station. There's a company called Made in Space that has put a couple of different generations of 3D printers and are trying to sort of figure out, can we do manufacturing in space? Um, can you use materials that you find in space in the low gravity environment and make stuff? And that is really useful if eventually you want to go to the moon and use the materials there to make stuff. And so station has been a nice platform for that. As you mentioned, if you're a company, and you want to test out your technology now in space, NASA has essentially opened the door and says, if you've got some business ideas for making money in low Earth orbit and you want to test out kind of a prototype on the station um, and are willing to play by our rules, we'll accommodate you. And you've seen that with um, there's this inflatable or expandable module Mm -hmm. on the station. So it basically launches scrunched up. And then when it got on the station, it was the Bigelow expandable module. It expanded. And now it's been on there for more than a year, and it's done quite well in terms of micrometeor debris holding its atmosphere and things like that. And so it's, just, it's turned into this really nice place for commercial activity. Right. And, you know, back to the uh, Made in Space program, I, I don't know, probably a lot of my thinking about this is heavily informed by Sandra Bullock movies or something. But it seems to me that that's an interesting concept because if there's something that you need up there, and maybe you even really kind of need it up there, but you don't have it uh, and you don't have time to have somebody fly it up there, presumably at some point with a 3D printer, you might be able to make something you don't have. Yeah. And that goes back to that goes back to something we talked about earlier. Um, you know, if you're on your way to Mars and something breaks, can you could you maybe print or make a replacement to that? And that is something, yes, you can do if you were to have some kind of sophisticated 3D printer. Now, we're not there yet. Maiden Space isn't there yet. But this is the kind of the, the first baby steps you would need to take ultimately if you were to get to some kind of, you know, ability to to manufacture your own parts or make whatever you would need on the way to Mars from some kind of feedstock. 
All right, so uh, there's all those things, and then uh, there's apparently a Russian killer robot uh, heading up there. Not really. I mean, this is something that you had to leap into action and cover, uh, Eric Berger. So uh, tell us about Fyodor, or whatever his name is. Ah, yes, Fyodor, the Russian killing Russian robot. That was that was sort of there was some sort of this wild story coming out that the Russians were sending up some kind of Terminator-like robot to the station. That's not true. NASA actually sent up a, a few years ago something called Robonaut, which was a semi-humanoid robot. Um, you could probably get more information from Scott if you ask him, but my understanding is that in reality, the, the Robonaut turned out to be not particularly useful. Took up a lot of space and was was kind of a kind of a failed experiment if you get past kind of the public relations um, fluff about that. Um, but, you know, so, but, but the reality is that, that there's not much that NASA does or Russia does that the other side doesn't know about. And those are the two main partners in the space station. And actually, you know, despite all of the problems we've had with Russia recently with the Trump and the election and all that, and then a few years ago with Ukraine, when there was a really kind of a, a breakdown in relations on the international level between Putin and Obama, um, with sanctions and so forth, the, the working relationship and the space program has remained very tight, and they work very closely together. Right. So it was just kind of a, maybe a PR mistake by the Russians. They were kind of bragging about how Fyodor could shoot with both hands. They should have said knit or something, you know. I mean, shoot was just sort of an arbitrary thing. All right. So um, how much longer is this uh, International Space Station kind of good to stay up there? Uh, I think in Scott Kelly's book, he describes it from the outside as looking kind of beat up. I mean, stuff is kind of smacking in there all the time. There's some wear and tear. How long can we keep it going? Well, technically, I think that there's a general agreement in the community that you could fly it until probably at least 2028 before you really had to recertify some of the basic components of it for a longer period of time. Um, the political side and the technical is a little more interesting because, as I said, it has a big budget, about $4 billion a year. And, you know, you have to get the international partners on board from that. Everyone's basically on board through the year 2024. But after that, there's some some people are kind of wavering on their commitments um, to, to keep it going because, as I said, it is pretty costly to, to keep that to keep it supplied and keep astronauts up there fed and happy and doing productive experiments. Um, and so, you know, there's some question whether it gets extended all the way to 2028. I, I guess in one way, one way to look at this, and obviously this all. This conversation we're having uh, happens against the backdrop of this NASA uh, director confirmation hearing is, you know, if, if it's really true, no, no bucks, if there's not a Buck Rogers, then yes, for three or four billion dollars a year, instead of doing the ISS, you could do a lot with telescopes, you could put a lot of telescopes up in the sky, you could do some things with robots and robotic exploration. But anything else that involves a human being, whether it's Orion or some other deep space plan, any, anything that would involve a human being is going to cost even more money, I assume. Yeah, and, and like I said, if you were to take the space station away and say, well, we're going to have a much more robust scientific program, not very many people in the aerospace community think that that $4 billion would just simply get moved over into scientific exploration of the solar system or the universe. I think a lot of that money would just go away. And so that would be one reason why people would push for the human funding to be continued. But yes, you raise an excellent point. You know, if you're not going to do station, what could you do? And one of the reasons that humans have essentially been locked in low Earth orbit since the end of the Apollo program, almost 50 years now, is because it does cost, using NASA's ways, and we're not talking about the commercial, you know, enterprises, using NASA's ways, it costs a lot of money. And so you would need more money probably to go to the surface of the moon and, and even more money than that than if you really wanted to go on to Mars in the 2030s like NASA says it's going to do. 
All right. Uh, we should probably stop there. Um, but thank you so much, Eric Berger, Senior Space Editor for Ars Technica. He has been joining us by Skype uh, from Houston. Uh, there are many more things to talk about. You're going to hear Scott Kelly just talk about the realities. Uh, the, uh, there'll be more talk of pooping, in case uh, you didn't get enough from me and Eric just now, uh, about the realities of being up there, some scary things that happen there. Um, and, of course, we always keep our eyes towards the future. Uh, what's going to happen next? Will there be another space station, a deeper space station at some point? Uh, we're not going to have time to talk about that today, but maybe on a future show. Now that I'm, I've actually been reminded that space exists so, uh, and that there's things up there. Um, so uh, my interest is rekindled. Anyway, we'll take a little break and we'll come back. Nation, nation working with nation, that's what we're about. International Space Station, symbol of cooperation, nation working with nation. I want you to think about what day it is today and then imagine a year from now. All right, that's a long time. So think, think about the idea that it's kind of the beginning of November, a year from now, how much time will pass. All right, so then let's see, add another 100 days to that. Uh, okay, so that's like getting to be an even longer time. And then let's say, let's see, I'll do the math. Add another 60 days to that. Uh, and I think you've got right there around the amount, the amount of time that our guest, Scott Kelly, has spent in space. He is the author of Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Notwithstanding that subtitle, though, he spent considerably more than a year in space uh, because he's been there more than once. Uh, Scott Kelly is a retired astronaut and the author uh, of that aforementioned book. Welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. There's so much to ask you about. Uh, and I think maybe the thing that we have to do at the beginning, because people don't know, people don't necessarily get this, is kind of give people a sense of the International Space Station. That's where an awful lot of this book takes place. You've been there twice. Three times. Three times. Sorry, three times. And and um, so, first of all, give, give us a sense of the size uh, of the space station. I, 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 at one point, I think you do compare it to, at least from the outside, a, a football field or something. How big is this place? It's big. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, you, if you landed it on Earth, which you couldn't do, but if you did, it would fit very nicely inside a uh, football stadium, cover the field. Um, now, most of that's the solar rays. It's not the mm -hmm. pressurized volume, but it uh, does have a pretty large internal volume, about uh, 13 different modules that together gives you, you know, something like a really large house, um, weighs a million pounds. <laughs> Pretty big. It's it's like a a, a large house, except that um, it's also very cramped in other ways, right? I mean, you describe what it's like if you're exercising and somebody needs to walk past you, right? That's really hard. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff inside. Clearly, um, you, know, you need a lot of stuff in space. You can't go out to the store if you forgot something or <laughs> you run out of something. So we have a lot of stuff on board. Um, but it's uh, it's big enough. You know, I never felt like I was climbing the walls and never felt like I wish I had another room, for instance. Right. It's big enough so that things get lost permanently, right? Um, at one point, you're unpacking stuff, and you say, if if you, this stuff gets put in not in the exact right box inside a box inside a module, uh, we'll never see it again. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we've lost stuff for good. You know, maybe we'll find it someday. 
the uh, I think the longest period of time we've ever gone from losing something to finding it uh, later is eight years. Um, and and I, I one of the things your book does so well is kind of give us a sense of you know I don't know some of the just physical realities of living in space, uh, living in an essentially weightless environment as we would call it here here on Earth. Uh, maybe you can share a few of these things to us. Let's start with eating. I mean, uh, on the one hand, this book does have a bunch of meals in it, and you you find out that the Russians bring up certain stuff, and you guys bring up certain stuff, and the Western Europeans, according to you, always have the best food. I mean, what kinds of things do you eat in space, and what's it like eating in space? Well, most of it's space food, obviously, and space food is either stuff that's um, dehydrated, mm. so it doesn't have any water in it, and you add the water later. more efficient to do that than launching um, water in the food, um, and there's other types of food that's irradiated, where on the ground, it's hit with radiation to kill any bacteria, so it's it's called thermostabilized, but it's it's hit with radiation to do that. It's kind of like, that food's kind of like MREs that the military has. Mm-hmm. And then there's stuff that's just off the shelf, like we'll have cans of, like, tuna, for instance. So not, t- you know, tuna kind of smells if you, you know, have, don't take out the garbage for months, but, uh, <laughs> you know, cans of, like, chicken or something or just stuff you might be able to buy in a uh, grocery store that is not going to require any refrigeration. But the process of eating in space is like everything else in space because of microgravity, just about everything else. It's, you know, it's more challenging. Um, and, you know, part of, I think, enjoying a meal is sitting down and relaxing. Mm-hmm. There's no sitting down and relaxing. No. You know, you're in the... You're floating, which is fun. It's sort of relaxing, but it's the same level of, you know, relaxation you have, whether you're, you know, typing on the computer or doing an experiment or sleeping. Right. You don't get to stop floating. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the other hand, there are, I mean, there's a very kind of, at least I found it kind of lovely and touching moment where I think you all, all go over to the Russian side and they host you and people kind of bring some of the best food that they've got squirreled away or, or things that they know the Russians would like. And the Russians have caviar and lobster and um, and. and and there's toasting. What are they toasting with? You said there's three toasts, and the Russians take their toasting very seriously. What do they toast with? Uh, whatever we have, you know, whatever you're drinking up there. You know, it's more about the uh, camaraderie mm-hmm. and, you know, sharing the fact that we're in this incredible place with, um, you know, uh, our colleagues and our, our friends. And it really is a, uh, you know, those... those um, Times we could get together, uh, all of us together, were really special moments, especially on holidays. Yeah, well, I, I want to come back to that in a second, but because we are uh, on this show very interested in the nitty-gritty details of life. Okay, so after you eat, something else has to happen, which is you have to ha- you have to eliminate that food from your system. So tell us about going to the bathroom in space. Yeah, so, you know, everything floats, so <laughs> it's uh, a very delicate process, mm-hmm. but the toilet, you know, that we urinate into is... Uh, has a vacuum, mm-hmm. so it's like you're peeing into a hose. Interestingly enough, though, that that the urine is uh, turned into water, mm. which we then drink. Right. We turn it into urine again. Right. Really. Right. And it's just like process over and over again that is pretty efficient. Yeah, I'm so, comfortable with that. Yeah, pretty incredible system actually. Now the the other stuff. There's there's actually one scene where um, well, I think one of your Russian 
comrades is uh, walking past some cans of this other stuff that have to be gotten rid of somehow. Yeah. And, and he kind of thinks that the lids aren't on right or something like yeah. that, and he makes the problem infinitely worse. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when you use the restroom, there are two forms of waste. One of them is converted into water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other one goes into a can. That has a name that I'm not going to use because it's... We appreciate that. I don't know what your rules are, but I don't want the FCC to get mad at me. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so we use these cans, and they're supposed to be sealed. And, you know, sometimes they don't get sealed perfectly, and, you know, you liberate the lid on one of these cans that's been squirreled away for a while and is getting ready to come home. And I almost fell off the treadmill that happened and I was in the I was in the adjacent module well where where I mean we can sort of set that those particular cans aside for a moment or not but I mean one of the things you talk about is just the problem with trash right you've got trash up there and it's not like you can just throw a window open and toss it out into space right and so what happens with trash yeah we collect it in some cases for months uh, we try to pack it as tightly as we can we try to separate the smelly stuff from the not as smelly stuff and keep that and uh, you know wrapped up in bags as tightly as we can to keep the smell in and then at some point you'll have a vehicle that's leaving the space station generally to burn up in the atmosphere although we have uh, a spacex that can land under a parachute and we put trash in all of them <laughs> um preferred to put it in the ones that burn up because we, it's better to send stuff you really want to get back to Earth uh, in the SpaceX, but sometimes we put garbage in there because we don't have enough other stuff that we need to return right away. And then, uh, you know, the vehicle undocks and burns up in the atmosphere, so sometimes when you wish upon a shooting star... Might be one of those cans I was talking about earlier. All right. So, and, and in fact, there's some lovely dis- uh, descriptions of even just like solving these problems in an informal way as opposed to a bureaucratic way. There's a, a point, I think, where you, you, the Russians have more room for stuff like this than you do. So, can you bring a couple of bags over there? And that's like something that would require 18 approvals down yeah. on the ground. So, you what, you just sort of informally decide to do that? Well, I think it's, yes, absolutely. At least I, I would. And, Russian colleagues I was up there with would. I don't know if that's always the case. You know, we've been flying at space station for a long time, but it seemed to me like that was, you know, if we could do it informally, it was it was the right thing to do because just like, uh, you know, just like water and oxygen, the ability to get garbage off the space station is, uh, you know, it's a commodity that we need to uh, to use as, as best as we, uh, you know, as efficiently as we can. And I think it also demonstrates, you know, the uh, cooperation of the crew members on board the space station and how, you know, we sometimes, you know, work closer together than and to, you know, cooperate more than maybe our bureaucratic, sometimes bureaucratic programs might think. Right. I mean, you know, it's the International Space Station, and that means what it says. It's um, uh, truly international. And, and in a way, you know, it, it fulfills maybe some of the more latent hopes and ideas about it in the sense that it's a bunch of people from other countries who really have to get along. If you don't get along up there, that's an enormous problem. There actually, I think, are 1.2 Russians uh, on one of your uh, trips there who, who aren't getting along, and that's unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the 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 picture of the Russians that emerges is at times heartwarming and at times kind of funny. I mean, at one point you sort of described going over to the Russian 
side of this. And it's like going to a different neighborhood where like things aren't maybe quite as nice. Uh, things are kind of built. I mean, there's that the old line from The Right Stuff about, you know, you're sitting on top of X million parts, each one of them uh, built by the, the lowest bidder. But I mean, on the Russian side, it sounds like that's carried to an extreme. There's just things that are kind of built pretty cheaply. Well, you know, in some ways, I, you know, I think I think they're very good at doing more with less. You know, their budget isn't as big. And, you know, I think that's a reflection of their, their society in general. They are forced into very practical solutions based on their economy. Mm-hmm. And that presents itself sometimes in, in humorous ways, um, at least humorous to a guy that works at NASA that is a much larger organization with more money and in a kind of a different philosophy and how we do things sometimes. So, well, you there, know, when you're when you're wrapping when you're sealing your spacesuit mm-hmm. with the same rubber band you use to seal the garbage <laughs> the garbage bags, same exact rubber band. Yeah. It uh, that that the the uh, irony of that is not um it's not lost on me, at least. Well, there, there's a there's a scene where uh, you walk over to their side and they're using a centrifuge. I think this is because you guys are having to draw your own blood all the time, mm-hmm. and, and and so and you say the centrifuge is first of all making this god awful noise that's actually really kind of disconcerting, mm-hmm. and, and I think you say to them that thing looks like it's just about to blow any second, which is both funny and not a joke at all, right? It'll kill you all. Yeah, if it blows. yeah, it's like a chainsaw the size of a shoebox. <laughs> but 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 there's also uh, there's also a way in which their attitude is infectious a little bit and helpful. Uh, we should talk about one of the really kind of. I mean, we're talking about just sort of quotidian things like where the, where does the poop go when you're done with it. But there's some pretty iffy moments here in in your stories from being on the space station. And there's one where a piece of, of space junk is coming towards you. Uh, you've been notified about it kind of at the last minute. Nobody quite understood its trajectory or the fact that it, it really could come close to you and maybe hit you. It's moving at this terrifying mm-hmm. speed. And and so this plan is is invoked where you guys are going to go into one everybody's going to go into one kind of module uh and 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 desert these other modules although it doesn't seem how that's going to be particularly helpful right if these things are moving 35,000 miles per hour towards each other it's not like one pod is going to survive better than the others i'll let you finish the story and talk about what nasa told you to do as opposed to how the russians handled this question yeah you know, you, you probably wouldn't, but, you know, I think sometimes you do things like get into the Soyuz and this lifeboat more because you have to do something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, gives you a little bit of a peace of mind that we're doing something. But um, on the U.S. side, they have us close all the hatches that, uh, you know, separate all these modules with the thinking if we get hit, you know, if we get if we get hit by the space junk if one if the module has its hatches closed you might survive i think the russians look at it a little bit differently sometimes they're a little bit more you know practical thinking although you know our how we handle this is somewhat framed by the fact that the space shuttle program had two fatal accidents one of which was very recent mm-hmm. that was a uh, kind of an accident that was more about recognizing a failure we thought was very unlikely mm-hmm. but very risky 
right. kind of puts us in the same kind of category, which makes us want to do something rather than nothing, and yeah. we can protect for it. So that's what we do. Right. So ju- just to be clear what you're talking about, too, I mean, about in terms of the hatches and stuff, um, I mean, closing the hatches is not a simple process. It's a process that takes hours, uh, and, and ultimately the Russian... Uh, the Russian space station inhabitants, they, they just looked at that whole thing and they, they said, to paraphrase you, screw it. We're just going to have a lunch in case this is yeah. the last lunch we ever have. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 it's not like the space station, it's not like the cosmonauts went rogue or anything against their wishes of their... Right. I, I think what we're going to do, by the way, the book is called Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. We've got uh, some other things that uh, are fascinating to talk about. We're going to talk to them a little bit uh, longer, but let's grab a quick break here and we'll be right back after this. Life in zero G is not some cup of tea. Muscles weaken, bones get brittle. Radiation poisons me. Strapped inside my berth, I look down on the earth. Wonder what the mission is and what it's really worth. But when I'm down in and I don't know what to do. I gaze outside the porthole and I marvel at the I feel so very small. Today's show was produced by Lieutenant Commander Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish ate all the stewed apples in the Russian quarters. Our interns are Ashley Taylor and Evan Sobel. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alan Shepard. On tomorrow's show, we'll talk about the allure and horror of small towns. On Friday, join us at The Study in New Haven for a live broadcast of The Nose. And now, back to Colin. So we're back. We're talking to Scott Kelly. Um, He, uh, at one point, uh, had the absolute record for the most time spent in space. He's still... You're number two now, right? Um, No. So if we're talking total time in space Mm -hmm. by an American, I am number three. number three. If we're talking single longest flight, like most time in space at one time Mm -hmm. for an American, I have the most. Yeah, you're number one, definitely number one there from that year in space. And that is the subtitle, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery by Scott Kelly, retired astronaut uh, and and someone who's led uh, an amazing life, an incredible career, uh, even before we get the astronaut stuff started. We don't have a lot of time for that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about space. One thing you say about space, and I'm not sure that I understood it at first or, or believed that you meant it, but you describe space as having a smell. Uh, talk about yeah. that smell. Well, you know, it's whenever you have someone go on a spacewalk and that volume of now air, like when you come back inside, you fill the airlock with air um, before you can open the hatch. Right. Otherwise, you'd be hoping the hatch to vacuum. Or, you know, between two spacecrafts that have just docked, there's a, a, a volume of space in there that was then filled with air. That space always has a very distinct smell. And some people say it's atomic oxygen. Others, um, you know, it's off-gassing of the material in a vacuum or material like the structure of the space station that was exposed to the rays of the sun. I mean, I need to do a little bit more research, but it is an unmistakable smell. Anyone who has smelled it will never forget it. And it's kind of like, to me, the smell of, um, like, if metal, like, burning metal 
Mm-hmm. Maybe like welding, a welding smell or the smell of like a sparkler on the 4th of July. Mm. Yeah, that is not, I mean, until I read your book, I had never given any thought to that. And if I, I thought think I'm going to try to recreate it somehow and <laughs> make a cologne. There you go. I don't, space. I don't think it'll be popular. It's actually not a bad smell, but it's... Um, we should, since we're talking about space, we should talk about space walks, which you've done. First of all, we should, a couple of things about space walks. One of them is that we don't get this watching, I don't know, movies uh, about this. It hurts, right? It's hard on your hands, hard on your body? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty grueling, actually. And there's not any walking involved. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why they call it that. <laughs> it should be called space working. <laughs> so so what hurts um, and, and why? Well, you know, your joints hurt. You know, your shoulders, your elbows, getting into it. You know, you kind of have to be sort of like Houdini a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's pressure points in certain parts of the suit. On uh, one of these spacewalks, I had something digging into my back, and when I got back, Chell Lindgren, one of my crewmates I was out there with, he's also a doctor, he had to lance this big blister on my back. You know, some people lose their fingernails mm-hmm. from the pressure on the tips of their fingers and the gloves, and sometimes those fingernails don't grow back. We've had guys that have had, you know, have some really bad nails as a result. But, uh, you know, hand fatigue, joint pain Mm -hmm. are, you know, I think what most people uh, would say are the biggest physical effects. Um, There is uh, another of the book's somewhat terrifying passages. I mean, it's not that terrifying because I'm reading your book, so I know you made it. But Uh you're on a space uh, walk or a space work, uh, if we're going to call it that. And there's something called an LAOC, a lost Loss of attitude control. Uh, just quickly, just uh, give us a sense. What, what happened on this occasion? Well, we almost had um, loss of attitude control because the U.S. side of the space station uses these giant gyroscopes to uh, control our attitude. And using, uh, you know, just momentum of the, the spinning wheel. But when you're on a spacewalk, like on this spacewalk in particular, we were venting ammonia overboard mm-hmm. into space, which caused a uh, moment on the gyroscopes that they had to use all their momentum to counter it. And once they run out of momentum, you either lose control or you have to turn on the Russian thrusters. And in this case, uh, what I was talking about was how we almost lost attitude control and how it made me think, you know, if we did that, we would lose calm. If we lose calm, you know, Chell and I on the outside on this uh, second spacewalk, you know, we're the only two people in the universe that can help one another. And it just kind of hit home that fact when I was out there thinking, you know, we have all these smart people on the ground, but they really can't help you if, uh, you know, because they're not there with you Mm. and give you advice. Right. So you survived this somehow, though. Clearly. Clearly, yes. But there's another way in which, because of all this, you're kind of a lab animal, right? You're now somebody who you're going to be studied for the rest of your life to see what the effect is of spending so much time in, in this environment. So what do they study you for? What do they want to know about you? Well, there's all different kinds of research we did on this mission. Um, you know, uh, the effects of microgravity on our bone mass, our muscle mass, our immune system, our microbiome, which is mm. all this bacteria that lives inside of us that's not us. You know, effects of radiation on us at a uh, genetic level, and that was part of the, you know, study between my brother and I um, was one of the focuses there. You know, the effects on us uh, from a uh, cognitive level, but, you know, I think, and the effects on our vision, 
NASA has recently realized there is, um, you know, some negative impacts of being in space for a long time on the structures of our eyes. So, you know, all these things are something that NASA will continue to look at and monitor me for, as well as my colleagues, too. Not just It's not just me. It's mm. everyone who uh, flies in space for NASA, you know, gets a yearly uh, medical exam, and we're part of this long-term research study. Right. You mentioned your brother. We haven't mentioned your brother yet. Uh, your brother, uh, Mark, is uh, he's your, your identical twin brother, uh, also a- an astronaut. So And so that's another only thing, right? You guys are the only two identical twin people who've worked uh, in space. Yeah, we're the only... Uh siblings. But being identical twins, that also allows them to, I would assume that excites a certain kind of interest, in, particularly in studying some of the genetic stuff. Can you say a little bit about what the genetic findings have been so far? You know, a couple of things um, I've heard about, but the way research works, uh, especially at NASA, is it takes, you know, like three to five years before, before stuff is... Um, published, you know, this research is published, but they have published some findings, you know, as an example, my telomeres, which are the things in our chromosomes that are indications of our physical age. As we age, they get shorter and get more frayed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The hypothesis was um, me in space, harsh environment, radiation, stress, my telomeres would get worse compared to my brothers on Earth. It was the exact opposite. They got better. (laughs) Our uh, Gene expression, how uh, genes turn themselves on and off, was really disrupted while I was in space and immediately after I got back, which is really interesting. Um, And, uh, you know, that's going to require some other research. But the results, you know, are still kind of in the, you know, analysis uh, phase and writing the, you know, research papers to later be published a few years from now. But these things are also very, they're significant in all kinds of ways. I mean, they're probably very significant from just a pure science standpoint, but also applied science and especially applied science, Scott Kelly, if we're going to go to Mars, because if we're going to go to Mars, we're going to be in space even longer. So I assume wanting to know, I mean, I, when we ever, whenever we talk about going to Mars. It seems to me we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff, but I think the average person doesn't think, oh, what's it going to do to their bodies just to be in space that long? And and so, and I know that you, you think it's important that we do go to Mars. So talk about that. Talk about that whole idea of the body in space for an even longer time. I think going to Mars is, is doable. Um, the am- amount of time I was in space was more than it takes to get to Mars. Mm-hmm. When you get there, you'll be in gravity, assuming you land. Um, if you don't land, you know, you'll be in space longer than I have, but at least you're coming back to Earth where you'll have people to help you out. Um, but I think, you know, Mars is a, um, definitely doable from a physical perspective. There's challenges with protecting the crew from radiation. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm up there trying to figure all this stuff out was to see how we could do that someday. I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. One of the most wrenching parts of this book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott Kelly is, when you get the news, you're you're on the International Space Station when you get the, the terrifying and terrible news that your twin brother's wife, Gabby Giffords, has been part of a mass shooting. Um, what an incredibly difficult thing to go through. I mean, you, you want to rush to your brother's side and your sister-in-law's side. 
And you can't. I mean, not only can't you, but I mean, the ISS has this kind of grueling workload that is kind of parsed out in these sometimes as small as five minute increments and your full concentration is required. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the hardest part about being in space. It's not your, you know, the personal risk you're um, exposing yourself to. But for me, it was always this idea that if something happened to my kids or my loved ones, my family, that you cannot be there in person for them. You are not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that psychologically is the hardest part. Um, I always felt that was so much harder to deal with than any kind of personal risk. And, and it, the same question fell on your brother, too, in the sense that he was scheduled to do a mission, uh, I think maybe a couple of months after the shooting of his wife, and, and, and struggled with that question and wondered if NASA would schedule, struggle with that question. I think you write that ultimately it was she who decided that question. Yeah, ultimately it was Gabby. Gabby decided whether Mark would fly in space again or not. And what did she decide? That he would. Yeah. So he did. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a, an amazing moment in in a book that is full of amazing stories. So Scott Kelly, first of all, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, it's a, it's a really the book is just fascinating stuff. You can't put it down. Uh, and and good luck with the future. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. To infinity and beyond. All right. Bye. Take care. So sing your song, I'm listening, out where stars are listening, I can hear your voices bouncing off the moon. If you could see our nation from the international space station, you know why I want to get back soon. 18,000 miles an hour Fueled by science and solar power The ocean's racing past At half a thousand tons 90 minutes moon to sun A bullet can't go half this fast Floating from my seat Look out my window, there goes home That brilliant ball of blue Is where I'm from and also where I'm going to So sing your song, I'm listening Out where stars are missing I've been wondering for a really long time, will I ever visit the International Space Station? And I don't know. It's up in the air.